Anyway, um, just to go on with the formal analysis, I was saying that the, uh, the payoff for all these lectures was coming up, and this is it, because this is, this is the, the liberating idea underlying formal analysis that is not an idea here in any other kind of uh, philosophical approach to the arts. Um, just to remind you, we were talking about imitations, um, that art is an imitation of nature and all that again, but I don't want to go through it all, but what we came out was that if art is an imitation of changeless models, uh, then beauty is truth. Um, if art is a cause of effects, that is to say, an imitation of natural causes, then the, the effect that you want to bring about is pleasure. So beauty is pleasure. If art is a set of conventions, then beauty is conventional, socially constructed, like you've always heard. But what I, I didn't like enough of, what, what are you imitating here? In a sense, you are imitating the conventions, but where do you get the conventions from? You get them from successful artists. In that system, art is imitation of successful, product, uh, successful artists. And you might want to ask yourself, which, which description most describes the contemporary art world? Because what you really are doing in the fine arts department is learning to imitate successful models, successful artists. You're not imitating the eternal truths of nature or the causes of pleasure. Right? You're going to the galleries with your narrow, limited historical time horizon <laughs> and finding whatever succeeds, and you're going to imitate it with enough variation to make the product your own. Right? I mean, that's what an art school education is. Um, so this would be imitation of successful beauty equals convention. Just leave it at that. Uh, we were saying, of course, imitation here is a different kind of term. Um, now. If that's what beauty is, and that's what the, the theory behind the different practices is, the question is, who's the audience? And this is where it becomes important to understand. If art is the imitation of changeless models, and those changeless models are by virtue of being changeless, true, right? Because in such systems, whatever would be eternal and unchanging and universal would constitute the truth, then the audience is all those who can understand the truth, namely, all souls. Because we're using soul here as a term that incorporates that kind of understanding. Usually they leave with their luggage. Perhaps just planning to spend the evening or a weekend here. Um, Think of Christian art as a, as a classic example. If you go to a cathedral and there are, there are stained glass windows uh, and you bothered to look at them, <laughs> um, you would, what, what, what is intended there is that you, the audience of these stained glass windows, is being elevated from the sensuous world of the senses to the ideal world of God, right? which would constitute the truth. In other words, your soul is being elevated beyond appearances to realities. And that all souls would be the audience. And the Christian method, of course, Christian message is applied to everybody, right? So it's also, if these are part of the cause of effects, and the effect we're causing is pleasure. In these systems, pleasure almost always turns out to be, always turns out to have a physical basis, a physical seat. Even when the pleasures are the pleasures of the imagination, the imagination is conceived of as a cerebral site, an actual place in the brain that is pleasurably stimulated by whatever it is you're imagining. 
If that's the case, then the audience is all bodies. Here, obviously, we're artist convention. The audience is all who share the convention. Right? Share the conventions. If you don't share the conventions, you don't understand what's going on in front of you. If you're not a, if you're not a, you don't share the uh, conventions of the Grand Kabuki in Japan. It just looks like a bunch of people screaming, not for you. You know, you're not understanding. If you don't share the conventions of uh, Hell's Angel biker tattoo art, it just looks terrible. Right? But if you share the conventions, it's fine. Or to, to, to put it, you know the horrible designs they put on skateboards while I'm at it? Apparently it pleases those people, but I don't share the conventions, believe me, cold. Uh, so the audience here can be can be quite small. It can be a, it can be a Hell's Angel group, right? Or you can share the conventions of quite extensive of the conventions. For example, it's a convention of the mystery story that the narrator is not the criminal. Ah, right. The detective is not the criminal. That's a fairly widely spread convention, right? You expect you expect that everyone does who read the mystery or goes to a mystery movie that the hero is not going to be the villain, right? If the hero is the villain, you recognize it as a variation of the convention, right? And those are fairly, those are, that's a widespread convention. If you go to a rom-com, you expect the beautiful young girl and the beautiful young boy to hook up at the end, right? That's the convention. Love stories end happily. That's a widespread convention. So you might be more conventional in your expectations than you think, uh, but there are also possibilities of being very small conventions. Um, what was I thinking of today? Oh, the troubadour. Uh, the poets who wrote the troubadours who wrote in Provençal in the, the 12th century in, in uh, southern France wrote for each other. They had a very highly elaborated set of conventions, but there were only about 40 people in the world who knew what they were. <laughs> a very sophisticated, extremely sophisticated art, but it's extremely, but the art of a very small social group. So the conventions can be extensive, they can be small, but they would always be conventional and would vary from time to time. Now, it gets a little complicated here, and this is where the rubber meets the road, as they say. Or as Justice Harwood used to say, this is where the boy gets his finger pinched. We're talking about imitation um, in such a way as it applies exclusively to artworks. And we said an imitation had to be of something, in something, and in some way. I got these in the wrong order, but we'll leave it that way anyway. Uh, and we said that the of something was, for Aristotle, we were in the process of channeling uh, human actions. And those people could be better or worse than us. In something, as we said, marble, paint, words, right, the various media, the arts, in some way, because there was more than one way to get the actions into the media. You could, you could narrate a story in dramatic form with characters speaking to each other, or you could narrate a story directly, the way a novel does, or you could narrate a story partly, <laughs> partly one, partly the other, that sometimes happens. You could do a first-person narration, a third-person narration, you're familiar with these terms, all the different ways of doing it. You could do a portrait of a hero in paint uh, as a history painting, showing Washington actually crossing the Delaware, 
or you could show him standing there like Napoleon. Uh, two different ways of doing it. Uh, Napoleon on the horse, or Napoleon with his arm coming out of his back in the Ang painting, right? Or uh, holding the staff of office. Well, those would be different. History painting is different from portraiture. Right? So all these, when Aristotle's done all this, he's able to differentiate all of the arts from each other on the basis of one of these three or all of these three uh, possibilities. Um, I don't want to get too technically Aristotelian, but wherever there's three in Aristotle, there has to be a four. Because in Aristotle, everything comes in fours. I said last week, I was leaving that for this week, and now I'm going to address it. These are the first three chapters of Aristotle's Poetics when he lays out means, manner, and object of imitation. And then he does something, and then in chapter six, he gives the definition of tragedy. And the definition of tragedy employs all of these three terms, but it also employs a fourth term. And the appearance of the fourth term is a very interesting thing. He says in, in that chapter, in chapter six, a tragedy then is an imitation of serious action people who are better than us, in words with songs distributed through it, that would be the Greek thing, told in dramatic form, not in narrative form, to raise pity and fear in order to purge pity and fear, right, to bring about a catharsis. In other words, he adds something, it's for the purpose of, right, in other words, the reason why the imitation occurs. We said before that you need to have a maker, a material, and a form to have something come into existence, but you also need a reason to make it, right? And if you lack the reason to make it, you won't get it made. I can have the wood and the nails, I can have the idea of the chair, I can have myself ready to make it, but if I don't want a chair, I won't make the chair, right? So we need to have a purpose. And Aristotle introduces the purpose into the definition of tragedy in chapter 6 of the Poetics. So that's 1 through 3, that's 6. And the question is, what happens in chapter 4 and 5? Well, where did the definition, where did the purpose of tragedy come from? Right? Where did Aristotle get it? He gets it in a very interesting way. In chapter 4 and 5, he gives a survey of the history of the development of tragedy in terms of the, of the relation between what the poets were moved to do and what the audience responded to. It's a history, basically, of the audience's reception of tragedy. And at a certain point, tragedy emerges as the art form that it, it finally becomes. Why does he do that? And this, this is the magical sentence which I will explain after I utter it. You couldn't know what the purpose of tragedy was what the effect of tragedy on an audience was, until an audience had arisen that by its experience and its training was such that it was responding to the essential parts of the tragedy and not to qualities accidental to themselves. All right, let me get that, let me get that part by part. You can't know what a thing is for until you have people constituted in such a way that their reactions will show you what it's for. Simple as that. Um, that requires 
experience and education, right? Uh, if you play Hamlet before an audience of six-year-olds, for example, they will fall asleep. You would be wrong to think that tragedy, that Hamlet was a bad play, or that the function of tragedy was to cause people to fall asleep. You wouldn't know anything about the success of Hamlet as a play unless you had an audience constituted by its experience such that it was responding to the play and not to feelings of their own, right? or anything accidental or, exter or exterior to the play. You need an audience of people who knew what Hamlet was in order to know what Hamlet, whether the performance was a good one or not. When I say essential to the play, I mean what we've been doing here. Only those parts that constitute the proper work, right? The, the plot, the characters, and so forth. What I mean by accidental to the audience is whatever associations or reactions they have that are personal to themselves, but irrelevant to the actual constitution of the artwork. That's the difference. In other words, if these things give you the proper parts of tragedy, or the proper parts of any artwork understood in these terms, there has to be something called a proper audience. The audience who is actually responding to the work as constituted and not responding to accidental associations they might have to it. That's the audience for a work of art. Those people who constitute themselves the audience by their efforts and their attention and their education and their interest in the work. Nobody else's reactions count at all. Right? That's the thing. This is an audience, this isn't all souls. This isn't all bodies. This isn't all people who share the conventions. These are only those people who are working hard enough to master the work in question so that they are actually responding to the essential nature of the work and not to something beside the point. Six-year-olds are not that audience for Hamlet. They're not the audience for any work of art. And when I was at the Met, I kept tripping over baby carriages, and my soul aches to know why anyone would think a baby should be at the Met. They're just not the audience for this painting, right? It's like, what, what the, what's a child going to do with that? It's going to immediately respond to the breasts because it needs milk. There you go. But that's not the proper response to the work, obviously. Um, a few years ago, my favorite example of this was many years ago now, actually. I went to see a performance of a classic Elizabethan poetic drama called His Pity, She's a Whore, which again shows the collapse of sophistication, by the way. Uh, the lead part, they used to do this at the public theater a lot, the lead part was taken by a famous rock star who fancied himself an actor. He was actually pretty good. But the audience was full of his fans. Right? So they cheered whenever he came on. But he was the villain. And it was not only, it wasn't a question of a, maybe he wasn't really the villain. No, the character he was playing seduces his sister, gets her pregnant, marries her to somebody, kills the husband she remarried her to, kills the sister, cuts out her heart, carries it to his father, who then dies. He's the villain, right? You don't, you don't cheer him. So why was that audience wrong, right? 
because they were responding to something accidental in the performance, namely who took the role, rather than something essential to the play, namely what the word meant and what the action was constituted by. And you might say they were also responding to something accidental in themselves, namely their admiration for the star, right? which had nothing to do with the play. Right? It had nothing to do with the play. They were responding to something that had nothing to do with the play. Now, they were most of the audience. <laughs> right? There are very few people in that audience who had actually read the play before they went to see it, right? or had memorized it <laughs> in some instances. Um, but they constituted most of the audience. They thought it was a great performance, but it was actually a bad production because what would actually happen was that they cut out certain parts in order to maximize his part, and as a result, threw off the proportions of the whole work and, and completely destroyed what was a, probably the greatest dramatic poem written in the last 400 years, the late Jacobean play. What is that? Must be the one. Doesn't sound like a heater to me. It sounds like a like an alien. Computers talking to each other. <laughs> what, it sounds like. what was the name of that play? What was the play? His pity, she's a whore. Uh, by John Ford. Not my favorite play, but as I say, it's the greatest dramatic poem written in the last 450 years, so it ought to be treated with some respect. But when they cut things out in order to accommodate the star, you have people who are in charge of putting on the production who aren't the proper audience for the work. That happens more than you'd think. So the idea of a proper audience is a great liberating idea that's implicit in formal analysis, because typically we think of this audience these days, we spontaneously conceive of the audience as causes and effects. And when you go to the movies, you see why, right? You go to a comedy and you laugh. You go to a thriller and you thrill. I don't know, whatever you do. You go to a, I don't know, I keep going, I can't stop at the stupid example. You go to a cartoon and you delight about that. I don't know. In other words, the whole thing is constructed to have an effect on you. Right? And to the extent that it has that effect, you judge it a good or a bad piece. If you go to a comedy and you don't laugh, you say it's a bad movie. It might actually be a flawless and perfect production, right? But you weren't attending to the art of it, you were just waiting for the laughs. By you, I mean everybody, right? The same thing would go for any movie. We spontaneously think of these things as causes of effect. And as a result, we spontaneously think of the audience as everybody, right? We always, almost always think that a work of art is intended for the mass, right? For the first 500 schmucks who walk into the gallery, right? They're as good as anybody else, right? They're the audience for the work. But, in, but when you look at it from this point of view, you see that's not true. The audience for the work is not the first 500 schmucks who walk in. It may be the one person who's constituted by experience and attention to respond to that work as it really is, and not respond to it as something purely personally. Now in this class we've been trying to make ourselves the proper audience for these poems and eventually for the painting and other things, right? So that when we were responding to something we were actually trying to find it in the work and where people were typically wrong and where they were off method was that they were telling us what was accidental in their own responses, right? I can't remember the charming young lady I don't want to disparage her, but remember from the first class when she was saying something like, grief 
it must have been a love affair. Remember that? In the, in the poem, Some Day of Pain or Grief, and she said, well, it must have been a love affair. Well, fine. I mean, I have the same personal associations as I said, but it was obviously a purely personal association because there was nothing in the poem that indicated that reading. She, was, in other words, was responding to something accidental in herself, not something essential in the work. That's why that was the wrong response. As long as it's essential to the work, it's okay. We have to discover those, what, the, what those responses are. Our own responses at the beginning don't tell us that those are the right responses. We have to discover what the right responses are to the work. You only do that by looking at the work. And that has a very big consequence for, for artists, by the way. And this, is, this is where it really counts. If I make a thriller, right, I already know what thrills the audience, right? There has to be a certain, well, they even write the formula out in the movie, in the movie uh, screenwriting classes, right? Uh, I don't know what the formula exactly is, but you have to have the hero, the heroine has to be in danger at the end, right? And they have to be separated so that she can be alone with the murderer, and then he realizes something and he has to get across town quickly, but there have to be obstacles in his way, and the audience is going to respond to this because it's suspenseful and they're going to jolt and it's going to turn out that the murderer is someone who they didn't expect, but of course they always suspected it, right? All that sort of thing. When I make that movie, and I could, I, I tell you, I could, I could be on the phone and raise hundred million dollars to make that movie by tomorrow. When I make that movie, I'm, I know it thrills the audience. In other words, although the audience, is, although the work is the cause of effects on the audience, the audience's expectations are actually the cause of the cause of the work. The audience comes before the work in the movies. They, they design it for the audience. The artists are not actually making the work on their own. The audience is causing it. Uh, market research is done for these things. Market research is done for all of the products you make, right? What does it mean? Give the audience what they want. Find out what they want. So who's the, who's the origin of the work? The audience is the origin of the work. But with this theory, it's the other way around. There is no audience for the work, properly speaking, until the work is there to be known. You can't know a work until the work is there, right? So the audience for the work comes after the work comes into existence. The audience for the work doesn't cause the work to come into existence. The work actually causes the audience to come into existence. Because until you have the work, there's nothing to know. Until there's something to know, you can't have an audience. The work precedes its audience, and the work creates its own audience, right? That is to say, those people who bother to learn what the work is. That's the great liberating thought for the artist. Because it means, do the work. <laughs> Don't worry about your audience. And that, I think, would be the great liberating thing for even designers, as a matter of fact. Uh, because the beauties of design are not, are not the result of audience research. They're the result of the inspiration of the artist, the desire of the artist to make something beautiful and perfect. Everybody always wants to make the best thing they can. Every maker wants to make the best thing they can. As soon as you start leaking in the idea of what you're going to sell it to or how you're going to design it for some specific pleasure that you're designing for an audience, the beauty of the thing goes out of it. Uh, and so that's the idea here, right? The proper audience means whoever bothers to learn the work. I'm not the proper audience for typography. I just don't care. I never took the trouble to learn it, all right? 
So if you show me a font and go into ecstasies about it, I won't know what you're talking about. Mr. Bevington is the proper audience for, for typography because Mr. Bevington knows everything about type and he loves it, right? He's the guy you show it to. My responses won't be any, won't be worth anything to you. You won't learn anything from me, but you learn everything from him. What's the difference? He's constituted by experience and interest to know it, right? The same would go for, you know, am I, am I the, the, am I the person who should tell you which translation of Greek poetry to read? No, because I never learned Greek well enough to read it as Greek. Carpenter is the person to ask, my friend who doesn't know Greek that well. These are just differences, not of intelligence or anything of, of that character at all. It's just difference of where we put our interest and our focus. Right? And, and, and in so doing, make ourselves aware of possibilities in art that enable us to understand the work of art in front of us more readily. Right? But in principle, although the proper audience might be a very small one, it's an elite. It's not the mass audience. It's always an elite audience, except in those cases of genuinely popular art, which is very rare by this definition. It's an elite, but it's an elite that doesn't, it's not a social elite. It's an elite of people who love the thing, right? If you love painting, you're the proper audience for painting. You may not get any particular painting, but you're the person who the painter wants to hear from. If you don't give a shit about painting, he doesn't care what you say about it, and he's right not to. And that would go for all the arts. Uh, that it's an elite, but it's an elite constituted by love. We can all count. I, I believe that's probably true anyway. But none of us have an interest enough in numbers to know anything about number theory. Right? In principle, we could learn enough number theory to know what number theory number theorists do. You wouldn't become number theorists. That's something entirely different, right? But you could learn to appreciate number theory theorems and so forth, right? There's nothing stopping you from doing it except you don't care. You don't have to care. No one's making you care. But when a number theorist wants to talk about number theory, he doesn't care what you think about it. Whereas I tell you, if you were genuinely interested, even though he's a research number theorist, he would stop to talk to you because he would recognize you as somebody who, in a sense, belongs to the same enterprise, even though you're not capable of doing it at his level. Uh, and that's who he would like to hear from, too, actually, I think. Or you'd rather hear from his peers, which is rather a small group of people. So that's the kind of elitism that we get out of this. Uh, it's a self-constituted elite. So it's constituted by, but in principle, it's democratic because it's open to anybody. In fact, it's very elite. It's very small elites who care about the arts. Um, they might care about the celebrity of the art, art world, they might care about that kind of thing, but very few people care about the fate of painting. <laughs> and I think very few people care about any of the arts these days. Who cares about contemporary poetry? A handful of people, right? A handful, but Philip Roth, the uh, our contemporary novelist of some merit, uh, says that there are 50,000 serious readers in the United States by which he means people who are reading not for, because they're professors of literature or because they're MFA students in creative writing, but just reading for the sake of reading new fiction. Do you think that number was higher at one point? I think it might have been higher at a point. I think it's too high now. I would say if you take out the poets who read each other, I think the audience for contemporary poetry is probably in the hundreds. Did you know that if you sell 500 copies of a poetry book, it's considered a bestseller? 
in a country of 300 some odd million people? That's a small number. I'm not saying that, 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 that those 500 people actually constitute the right audience for poetry. It might even be smaller than that. Um, but in other words, a proper, but that doesn't have anything to do with the merit of the work. The work can have the greatest merit possible, like those troubadour poems. They're as great a poem as ever been written. 40 people understood them, right? Now maybe, maybe there are 200 people who are reading troubadour poetry in the world at this moment, right? But the work is still perfect, right? The, the, the popularity is not a test of merit in the arts. It is here. It's, the, it's, the, it's, it's what constitutes success, right? Or proof of success. But it isn't over here where it doesn't mean anything. There is, there is such a thing as genuinely popular art. Dickens is genuinely popular. He sold uh, equivalent of bestsellers, and Dickens is a great novelist. Um, but it's but it's less common. But Henry James, meanwhile, sold it to thousands and thousands of the hundreds, and maybe Henry James is also a great novelist. Um, but that's not it doesn't mean Dickens is better because he sold more copies. It just means that James appealed to a, to a smaller audience. Which is worked as perfect or more perfect than want to get it. So think of it that way, and I think that's, that's the liberating idea behind all this. Uh, you can get the audience out of your mind. And the next time a teacher says, well, what do you want the, the, the viewer to feel? You could say, I'm not thinking about anything except the good of the work to be done. I just want to make the best thing possible. The viewers can take care of themselves. Which is a real right attitude, actually. Not to think about it, about anybody but the work. That's what the artist is really concerned with. All right, does that make any sense? All right, so that, as I say, is the payoff for this whole approach. Yes? as a human being. I think in Aristotelian terms, we would say it's everybody is potentially the artwork for any, the audience for anything. But whether that potential is actualized in any given person goes by variables that you can't predict. So you can be, you can have the best education and be the highest, I've come from the biggest fortunes in America and not have any cultural tastes or artistic tastes at all. You might own, right? You might own Corot's on your wall, but it doesn't mean that the ownership confers anything to you. You didn't actualize the potential you had to be a lover of painting. Okay, you don't have to, right? Love can't be forced, right? It has to be there. It, it's not a product of, of uh, social factors. You could be from the lower classes, like me, a lower class kid from the Bronx, right, and end up reading troubadour poetry because he loves it, right? And let me tell you, there are all sorts of obstacles in the way, <laughs> but I fought through them. Um, so the potential is always, is, we have to, I, I think it's a human potential. 
I think the, the goal of, of education is to actualize potentials, but not all potentials are going to be actualizable to the same degree. I think to this extent that if you, if you there is, as Jill Sam would say, we have no duties in that direction. We have moral duties in, in, and we have to, as humans, recognize them. But the beautiful, to put it in, in, in abbreviated terms, is not something that is morally exigent for us. It doesn't, we are not demanded by our human nature to love the beautiful. We have the potential both to come demand, whereas we, we're loving the good, there, we argue there is a demand. Um, but I do think anyone who undertakes to talk or think about the arts has a moral obligation to become, to make themselves the proper audience for what they're talking about. And that's something very absent in criticism. You know, the person, there's a show on television which I love to watch called Just Seen It. No one sees this except me. It's a show on public television. It's like seven moronic 20-somethings talking about the movies they've just seen. Right? And, uh, and the joke is, they've just seen it. They didn't think about it. They didn't see it twice. They didn't, they didn't look closely at it. They didn't analyze it. They just saw it. And they feel perfectly competent to talk about it. Blah, 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 blah. And I just watched it, and I can't believe my ears. I can't, I can't get enough of the show, right? <laughs> they have a responsibility. To, the same responsibility anybody has who's pronouncing on something to take the trouble to inform themselves about it. I don't see that in criticism anywhere. You know, I just don't see it anywhere. Maybe the food critics, but how much do they know, right? And who cares? The movie critics, if you ever listen to the movie critics, they have got nothing to say about the movies. I liked it. I didn't like it. I identified with the character. I couldn't identify with the character. It's like, you know, it's like, what is this, third grade? You're, you, you have presented yourself in public as an authority on this matter. Inform yourself about it. We're, we're doing a book in the other class by uh, a Viennese music critic from the 1850s, granted. Um, and this is obviously before recorded music. And so whenever there was a concert, he made sure to play the pieces through on the piano twice before he went. And that, that's a lot of musical expertise, right? Um, as a result, when he was talking about music, he was speaking with authority. <laughs> that's where authority comes from. Unless you're willing to do that, unless you're willing to sit to the movie five times, you're really not, there's nothing you're going to say of any value. Unless you're willing to look at the painting for several hours, there's nothing you're going to say that's any value. Right? So I think that's where the obligation comes in. But it's not, it's not an aesthetic obligation as such. It's more of a moral obligation that you shouldn't lie to people. So then, um, what artists or creators who are actually making the art would they be the best people to describe or criticize other art because they know what it takes? Well, but they might not. They, but they could be. They could have blind spots too, right? Um, 
the inside knowledge that we try to get in this class is accessible to some degree to everybody. Just remember the painting, even a painting, is framed for perception, right? And we can perceive it. So we, although we may not know how the painter did it or what the action of painting was like, we can, we can aspire to becoming a proper audience for any given work. It is true though, when you get a painter in front of a painting, or you listen to a musician talking about music, you realize just how far you are from being the audience you want to be. Or when you listen to a fashion designer really talk about the construction of a garment, a fashion pro who can take it apart with their eyes and tell you what's, what's, how it's constructed. But so how did they get that way? They loved it, right? And I don't consider myself the authority on anything like fashion for that reason, because I've heard people discuss it and I don't know what they're talking about. All right. Okay. My weekend. All right. Weekend starts. Oh, how do we do this? Someone going to do this for me?